Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks for joining us to lead, learn, and laugh. Learn market knowledge and best practices to lead your company's success. And that's whatever type of company you work with. And laugh, I think we have to have some fun along the way. I'm Michael Bull, your host of the World of Commercial Real Estate. Thanks for joining us. Remember, if you have any questions or comments related to this show or about any commercial real estate endeavors, give us a call. Our phone number is 888-612-SHOW. Or you can catch us by email at info at com. You can also connect with us through Twitter. The show Twitter account is at CRE underscore show. Well, today we're talking about the capital markets, uh, including the latest on QE3, IPOs, M&A, CMBS, ORIO, LTV, DCR, REITs, and BB&T. Okay, we'll talk about it all. All right, we'll also we'll get serious. And as usual, we'll have some leading experts in the country on the show, and this week to cover the latest on the capital markets. Please welcome my first guest, Stephen Marks, Managing Director, Fitch Ratings. His primary areas of expertise are REITs and real estate operating companies. Fitch Ratings is a global rating agency dedicated to providing value beyond the rating through independent and prospective credit opinions, research, and data. Stephen Marks, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Michael. Well, Stephen, the market is heating up. Uh, cap rate uh, compression is is happening, especially in the major markets and the core properties. Uh, what about in the REIT space? Are we seeing more development? What trends do you see there? We're, we're seeing um, an uptick in development, and it's something that we published back in uh, in June of this year, a, a, a piece about REIT development. And and one of the things you just spoke of, Michael, is, is cap rate compression. And the one place where we are seeing uh, a significant uptick in development far and beyond all the other sectors is in multifamily. And it really comes down to a build versus buy decision for most of these REITs. And with cap rates where they are having compressed, it just makes mathematical sense for these companies to develop versus versus try to buy things. And so we're seeing, we're seeing that's the one place where we're seeing upticks. Pretty much every other sector is fairly muted. Um, and even multifamily, which is up, is still way, way down from the peak uh, back in 2007. And multifamily, obviously, is, is developing. Uh, what other sectors do you see that are most prominent uh, and prone to develop right now? Uh, the only other sector where we're seeing a little bit of development is in the industrial space. Mm-hmm. And while back in 07 that may have been cause for concern, uh, this time around it's not because most of the, the industrial development is on a build-to-suit basis where the tenant is already committed to a lease before a shovel gets put into the ground. And so uh, the degree of truly speculative industrial development uh, is is again nowhere near um, where it was in the peak in two thousand seven two thousand eight. Right. Well, Stephen, talk to us about QE three, the printing of money here. I mean, you you concentrate on REITs. Uh, what effect is that going to have on the capital markets and on REITs? The first thing that that we're likely to see is is just further declines in in all in interest rates and all in costs. Uh, QE three is going to is going to to reduce the cost of funding and and. Uh, the ability for REITs to get to get really attractive capital, we thought was great back three or four months ago. We think it's only going to, going to get stronger, just given the what QE3 is going to do. That the thirst for yield from the investor base uh, is going to, in our view, uh, continue to uh, increase the demand for REIT paper, and that could be that could be stocks, bonds, preferreds, really all up and down the capital stack. So it could have a big increase in the amount of equity out there buying and developing, right? Uh, it, it could, although although REITs have been fairly prudent, uh, you know, since since 07 in terms of the amount of development, 
they're not developing just because they have capital. They're only going to develop if they think there's tenant demand for it. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> and what's been driving the huge increase in healthcare M and A, uh, and you know, what is your outlook there for REIT to REIT uh, merger activity? Yeah, yeah, we've definitely seen a big uptick in the last eighteen months. Healthcare M and A has been has been the story really in terms of dominating the, the REIT M and A space, and a lot of that has been driven by the the RIDEA structure. That that's another. Uh, Another alphabet soup there for you, some idea. Um, <laughs> so we, without going into, into a tremendous ton of detail about it, 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 it's somewhat of a complex structure. But what it allows is REITs to to essentially own and operate healthcare facilities, where in the past they weren't able to do that. And so we're seeing com- we're seeing companies, not REITs, but companies that do own and operate healthcare real estate, being able to find a good liquidity source for the real estate. If, if these operators want to be asset light, they now have a, a very willing source or a willing partner of capital, uh, i.e. healthcare REITs, to dispose of a lot of the real estate. So, so we envision that, that healthcare, real, healthcare is going to continue to dominate the, the M&A arena uh, going forward. Okay. And how many of these uh, companies might go public? What do you expect to see in the IPO market? Um, well, you've got Archstone out there, which you know, the, the story has been, has been well told about that company in the multifamily space. But by and large, other than Archstone, there's maybe a couple other other uh, IPO candidates that that are probably viable candidates in the pipeline. So we don't envision there being a tremendous amount of of IPO activity. Where we do think there's going to be a a um, an emergence or a, a a a lot of REITs going public in the traditional way might be some of these non-traded REITs that have raised capital over the last three or four years, looking for liquidity, looking for an exit. Um, providing some sort of event for their shareholders who have been who have been patiently waiting for the last uh, you know three to four years. Okay, and talk to us about raising capital in the REIT space. Uh, you know, what do you see there? It's it, this is a, a really a unique time in the REIT sector. Usually, when you pick a, a given point in time, there's usually one segment of the of the capital markets that is inhospitable or essentially not accessible by REITs. Back in 2000, late 2008, 2009, it was the bond market. The last uh, you know, a year after that, it was the preferred market. Um, but now, every class of of issue of security issuance up and down the capital stack, secured debt, unsecured debt, uh, preferred stock, equity, everything is wide open. Um, it's really never been a there's really never been a better time for REITs to access capital. And and the openness is also combined with all in historically low all in costs of funding as well. So it's. These are unprecedented times in the REIT space for, for capital raising and access to capital. Okay. What about commercial banks' appetite toward increasing exposure to commercial real estate? Do you expect to see more activity there? We continue to see uh, that, that commercial banks remain, remain very focused on, on lending on, on an unsecured basis to high-quality REITs. A lot of that is driven by some of their, their regulatory issues they need to deal with in terms of Basel III and and their need to put out committed forms of capital. So we, we saw a tremendous amount of, of, of uh, term loans, you know, billions and billions of term loans to to high quality REITs. And it's really that, that's that's been another source of funding for REITs. Typically, REITs would issue in the unsecured market. Instead, they're accessing bank term loans, which um, you know they really never accessed uh, to this large of a degree. So so commercial banks very committed to the sector, um, particularly on an unsecured basis. Okay. And Stephen, you're analyzing these REITs and, and their property types. What do you expect to see on property level performance for some of the various sectors in commercial real estate moving forward? Yeah, we can, we can talk about multifamily first because uh, the fundamentals have been wonderful. 
the, the concern that we have uh, heading into 2013, we still think fundamentals will, will be positive on, in the multifamily sector, but there may be a bit of, um, of rent bump fatigue um, on behalf of tenants. I think they're just they're just feeling a little bit under pressure because the, the rent the rent increases just keep coming and coming. So um, that might be one area where where uh, things are still going to remain good, but maybe a little bit more under pressure. Uh, industrial looks pretty good as well. Uh, there's still a bifurcation in the office sector between CBD office, uh, which we think will remain stable, and suburban office, which we still will continue to remain soft. And, and that's driven really by the lack of a catalyst for, for near-term job growth, which is the underlying driver for, for office occupancy. And then retail retail is bifurcated as well between the big, the big uh, you know, defensible uh, malls, big regional malls versus some of the strip centers. We think malls will do better and strip centers a little bit worse because some of the grocers are are facing more pressure from some of the big box retailers. Okay. And what are some of the risks in the market, uh, Stephen? What uh, what should we look out for? Well, from from a credit perspective, which is which is where we we dedicate most of our efforts, it, it, it they're not so much micro events anymore. I think in the past we were, we were more concerned about about things like property level fundamentals or access to capital. Here, I think going forward, our concern is is more macro. What happens with the economy? What happens with um, the European effort? That seems to be stabilizing a little bit, although although it just seems like they're in, in some ways potentially delaying the inevitable of what happens in Europe. So uh, those are those are major concerns: the, the macro economy, Europe contagion, things of that nature. Okay, and what about the Fed's uh, agreement to keep interest rates low through 2015? How do you think that could affect the capital markets and REITs? We we think it's going to be a positive for REITs. Mm-hmm. To the extent rates remain low, there is going to be a just an overwhelming uh, thirst for yield, and and that benefits that benefits REITs all up and down the capital stack. We've seen a, a big up increase in in, uh, in stock prices for REITs over the last six months. That's probably driven by an expectation that QE3 or the Fed uh, remaining dedicated to keeping rates low was going to happen. Um, uh, you know, unsecured debt again, the cost of funding. It, it's all really just a yield and cost of capital play, and it's all it's all benefited REITs, and we think it's going to continue to benefit the sector. Right. Okay. Well, Stephen Marks, thanks for joining us today. We sure appreciate your insight. Thank you very much, Michael. And if you'd like more information from Fitch, Fitch Ratings, visit FitchRatings.com. After a quick break, we'll have more guests joining us and more on the capital markets. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit BullRealty.com and Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com. Well, welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. If you'd like to know the absolute latest on any commercial real estate-related subjects, check out our on-demand show podcast. On last week's show, we shared the latest on the hotel industry, and the week before, an interesting show on syndications and group real estate investings, including some Reg D changes coming up, which should make advertising for investors legal 
and even allow crowdfunding. There are lots of shows to choose from that are interesting. Check them out on iTunes or on your computer or smartphone at the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're talking about the capital markets. Please welcome Tom Walsh, Senior Vice President, Production, Grandbridge Real Estate. Based in Charlotte, North Carolina, Grandbridge arranges permanent commercial and multifamily real estate loans, services loan portfolios, and provides asset and portfolio management on a national basis. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Michael. Nice to be here. Also, please welcome Christopher Schweitzer, Senior Vice President, Commercial Real Estate Manager, BB&T. BB&T is one of the largest financial services holding companies in the U.S. with $174.8 billion in assets and market capitalization of $21.9 billion. Based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, the company operates approximately 1,800 financial centers in 12 states and D.C. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And welcome Michael Hartman, Director of Capital Markets, Resnick Group. Resnick Group is ranked among the top 11 accounting firms now with their recent merger in the United States, and they provide accounting, tax, and business advisory service to clients nationwide. They are very well known for their depth of knowledge in the commercial real estate industry. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And gentlemen, the uh, Fed announced they're going to purchase an additional $40 billion in agency mortgage-backed securities per month. And Bernanke also said they'll keep the federal funds rate at zero to a quarter percent through mid-2015. What effect have you seen this have on the capital markets, or what effect do you expect it to have, Tom? Well, on the agency question, um, one thing to keep in mind is the, the Fannie Freddie multifamily side of that is a fairly small percentage of the overall pie, probably as little as, you know, four or five percent. I think the main thing that that tells us is that Fannie and Freddie are still going to be viable sources of, of multifamily finance for the foreseeable future. I hear applause. Um, out there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's at least until Congress decides otherwise. And, and uh, that's not projected to happen probably in at least for a year and a half to two years, if not more. So I think Fannie and Freddie are steady as she goes right now, and we expect them to be the, the big players in multifamily. Okay. And, Mike, how about Bernanke saying the interest rates will stay low through 2015? What effect do you think that might have? Well, I think the, the effect that interest rates have on the commercial real estate investment market is at a very high level, there's an asset, asset allocation model where a decision is made at an endowment or a pension fund or an insurance company. A decision is made as to whether we're going to invest in equities, in bonds or in, in commercial real estate. And commercial real estate has always been a yield play, okay? So if I can invest directly in a piece of real estate and get the yield, and that yield provides, on a risk-adjusted basis, better compensation than buying bonds, which I know are gonna be low rates for the long time, then more money will get allocated towards commercial real estate, which bolsters the argument for higher values and lower cap rates. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I was meeting with a, a developer uh, yesterday of institutional quality apartment complexes and I think they were real pleased because you know if interest rates stay low through 2015 uh, they have a better exit strategy you know they can build those apartments get them stabilized and sell that at a, at a five cap uh, and, and and feel confident they can still be able to do that so uh, that's pretty interesting well Adam Timken reported in Reuters Friday that eight billion in CMBS issuance is expected in the next month he also said that 3.7 billion was easily absorbed in two weeks uh, recently. Um, the U.S. Barclays conduit contained loans for regional malls in secondary markets, which may be a good sign. You know, is bond investor risk tolerance increasing? And 
uh, is investor demand for these conduits improving such that we'll continue to see more available CMBS financing, Tom? There is a pretty strong appetite out there right now on the CMBS side, um, but I would temper that in, in saying that it is really uh, for more higher quality assets. Um, the conduit lenders have become more and more picky as, as far as the assets they will uh, finance, mostly because they're afraid of kickouts and securitization. And depending on which CMBS lender you are, the, you know, that can be a moderate uh, pain or a real disaster on a kickout. Where we've seen them get aggressive, uh, if you want to say they're getting more aggressive, is really on the pricing side. No, I want to hear they are. I don't <laughs> I want to see you. I want to see they yeah. are, right? Well, yeah. It, on, on the pricing side, um, we've seen investor spreads come down on CMBS uh, to, to really very aggressive levels. But again, it's really geared for, for, for more quality product. Uh, as far as underwriting goes, uh, underwriting has been fairly steady, maybe a slight uptick in aggressiveness, but uh, almost almost too little to notice. Okay, so I can't bring you my half-full uh, B uh, <laughs> office property? Uh, you, CMBS loan you, you probably can, but it won't be a CMBS loan we'll be <laughs> using to finance it. <laughs> You'll be a guy that's going to break my knees, money. Well, what about bank financing? Is underwriting easing up today, as say, compared two years ago or even uh, last year, Chris? Without question, it's uh, eased up, uh, particularly in the multifamily space, although I would say that uh, the banks are doing everything they possibly can not to go in that direction. I mean, it's kicking and screaming, but you've got the competition that's there. You've got an improved investor psychology. It's uh, moving in the direction of easing up in the underwriting standards. Uh, I think the banks would first want to say, uh, let's talk pricing. We'll give up on pricing in order to in order to avoid uh, changing the structure in a more aggressive way. Uh, but you are seeing structural changes that the market is demanding, and the banks are uh, having to give up in. I think maybe particularly because a lot of the uh, banks that have been left for dead uh, are back into the market and trying to find ways to uh, to position themselves against the. Uh, uh, against the uh, name brand banks that uh, came across in the market as uh, as real players for the long term. So how do they compete? They pr compete on underwriting. The whole market has to respond. We'd rather at BB&T give up on pricing and keep the, uh, the higher quality, but we are having to deal with uh, um, loan-to-value, loan-to-cost, and uh, in particular we run into a lot of uh, discussion about recourse and levels of recourse and guarantees. Right. And I think these loans that are done on commercial real estate today are probably going to be some of the safest loans that we've seen in a, in a long time. And at BB&T, you guys are regional throughout the southeast, Chris. What are your goals and your, your budget at BB&T for real estate-oriented loans uh, in this, into this rest of this year and, say, next year? Our, our budgets are what I would call difficult, in a word. Um, it's probably not going to be terribly difficult to originate and have the loan production levels that we would hope to have. For instance, in, uh, in Atlanta, uh, we're looking at uh, about, looking to originate about 300 million in new, new loans this year, and our other, uh, other major metro markets within our footprint, probably similar goals. Where we think that's gonna take us if we were to, uh, throughout the bank, meet our budget for new loan production, it's gonna take us to probably about flat to slightly declining overall outstandings. And that's really the, uh, the key differential that I think that a, that a banker is going to look at versus the uh, borrower side. The borrower is interested in 
uh, are you actively lending and making loans? And the answer is absolutely, and a lot of banks are. Uh, but on the bank side, we're looking at the outstandings, and people like uh, uh, Tom and Mike here are running off our portfolio by going into the permanent markets, arranging equity and sales and things like that, where we're, what we're bringing in the front door is going out the back door pretty quick. So we imagine that we're going to have a roughly flat uh, exposure to commercial real estate overall, overall, but we are actively growing the revenue side. Okay. Well, BB&T, you guys did a loan for me recently on an office building I own, and I was very impressed. Uh, great rate, great service, and, uh, and, and just went about it in a smart way. Well, stay with us. We'll have more on the capital markets for you. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. How would you like people to come to your website to hear the Commercial Real Estate Show? Well, you can now download a free widget allowing your site visitors to access the show videos and audio podcasts right on your website. Just visit CommercialRealEstateShow.com and look for the widget on the homepage. You can see how it works and easily download it to your site. After you load it, it works automatically. Today, we're talking about the capital markets. My guests are Tom Walsh, Grandbridge Capital, Chris Schweitzer, BB&T, Mike Hartman, Resnick Group. And uh, Tom, you are sourcing debt for, for people all over the country, all kinds of property types, uh, especially apartments. And which sources are the most competitive for various property types in uh, borrowers? Let me break that question into two pieces. Um, on, on property type first, um, Clearly, Fannie and Freddie are, are the dominant players in, on the multifamily side. Um, there is more competition for Fannie and Freddie now than there has been in the past several years, but they're they're still the dominant sources there. You have, but you have life insurance companies getting aggressive on multifamily, especially on high-end multifamily, and you also have the CMBS lenders uh, that are there, um, not priced as aggressively as the agencies, but you know, they're there to sort of pick off uh, a deal that, for any number of reasons, is not an agency fit. Now you're still the, talking multifamily here on right? multifamily, right. Yeah. 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 On on the commercial side, um, that is mostly a life company and CMBS uh, you know scenario there, and and that, that's where I would break it into the other two pieces, which is leverage level. Uh, if, if you are looking for maximum leverage, and I'm not even sure I know what that means today, but let, let's say, for example, that you need a, say, 70 to 75 percent loan on a commercial property, that is probably today more likely going to be a CMBS execution, a conduit-type loan. If you get into lower loan-to-values on the commercial side, then you're getting into where the life insurance companies are going to be more aggressive and they will price more aggressively for that lower leverage. Uh, one, anecdotally, in, in our office, we got a note yesterday 
Um, they're talking about a, I believe it's about a 50 or 55% loan on a grocer-anchored retail center that one of our life insurance companies was offering three and a quarter for a 10-year loan on that. But it was the right property type. I mean, you know, grocer-anchored retail is probably the, the right under multifamily in the desirable uh, chain. And also, he had low leverage. And that's where the life insurance companies will get real aggressive. If that loan had to be a 75% loan, there's a decent chance that one of the aggressive CMBS lenders would probably win that deal. And what about the sponsor? The sponsor really matters now, uh, as a, like it did several years ago, right? Uh, the sponsor matters more now than any time that I can remember in my yeah. 25 years or so doing this. Yeah. Um, and that's across the board in every lender. Um, if you go back a while ago, that was more of a bank type of thing, where, where the banks really focused on the credit and the other lenders really focused on real estate. I, I think the, foc- the primary focus is still on the quality of the asset with the agencies and the life companies and the conduits, but every one of those lenders is taking a very hard look at the borrower today. The borrower's financial strength, net worth, and liquidity, the borrower's track record, then, then how they treated their lenders during the downturn. You know, sometimes you did something five years ago that's coming back to haunt you now, um, and that, that's a fairly common case we run into. So we, there's a lot of stories to be told on the borrowers. That's not just banks anymore. That's with every lender now. Okay. So if I have a uh, B retail property, it's stable, but it's not new. It's not institutional quality. What might be a good source for, for a loan on that property? If you need, say, above a 65% loan, that's probably a CMBS execution. Mm-hmm. At below 65%, if you have the fundamentals right as far as location and quality asset, then it's probably a life insurance company execution. Okay. And somebody talked to me about recourse. What do you see out there? Well, uh, this is Mike talking. I, uh, I wanted to draw sort of a distinction between a recourse loan and a non-recourse loan. Of course, a recourse loan, the, the borrower is going to guarantee that personally. Um, and what we're seeing now is that uh, as long as you have coverage in place, net operating, a net operating income that can cover the debt service, you're going to probably be able to get a non-recourse loan. The magic number, if there is one, is sort of a 1.2 coverage. If you have enough cash flow to service your debt by 1.2 times, mm-hmm. there's a good likelihood you can get non-recourse. Um, I'll, I'll tell this real quick story on an office building. So you have an office building that's got great cash flow. It's got the coverage going for a non-recourse loan. The bank's going to make a five-year loan, and he's looking out over the next five years, and there's a tenant rolling in year four. Now, the bank is going to say, well, how do I know that when that tenant rolls, you're still going to have the cash flow to repay my loan? Even though it was the, 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 the lease is a, a sort of a market rate lease, there were no games with the assumptions about the lease roll, that bank wanted a guarantee, a personal guarantee from the borrower to cover the event of that lease not rolling, um, which is pretty aggressive, actually, for a bank a position to take and maybe one that in the pre-crash era wouldn't have been a stipulation of the loan, but now that we are in sort of a post-crash era where people got burned on that assumption, um, there, there, there's, banks are being more aggressive with non-recourse lending. Um, banks and other lending sources are, but they put hooks in you know, when they become uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay, we're going to talk more about recourse and underwriting and some more sources for you. I'm Michael Bull, and you're listening to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. 
visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Ball, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Well, we have some very interesting shows coming up for you, including a show on retail tenant strategies, a show on real estate tax strategies, and a show on important commercial lease issues. We call that one, oops, I should have covered that in the lease. (laughs) So be sure to catch shows of special interest to you. Sign up for a -a once-a-week email announcing the show topic at commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're talking about the capital markets. My guests are Tom Walsh, Chris Schweitzer, and Mike Hartman. And Tom, I'd like to talk to you about some of the current rates and terms for some of the various property types. Can you give us some actual examples of closed loans? Sure. Um, On the multifamily space where we started with uh, on the Fannie Freddie side right now, if you're locking rates today on on a 10-year deal, you're likely going to be up in the... 380 or 390 range maybe maybe four percent on on the on the wrong product type per se um if you get down uh into the shorter terms on fannie and freddie the fives and sevens seven year deals today probably down around three and a quarter to three and a half uh and that's for full leverage um and five-year deal probably down around three or so um both fannie and freddie drop their rates pretty substantially as you go down the leverage scale you know, if you're down in that 50-55% loan range today um, on a multifamily deal, you might be down in the three-and-a-half range for a full 10-year term. Um, What's the difference between, say, an A product and a B product there? Are the rates adjusting any there? The, the A and B product on the agency side are relatively the same, um, and, and, and defining B is never easy to do. Um, but uh, they're, they're looked at relatively the same. It, it's when you start dropping below B, um, if you could get the agency to do the deal, you're probably going to have a pricing premium in there. More often than not today, though, it's more difficult to get the agency to do the deal on, well, I, if you I can go def- below B. I can define B easily. My C product is B. On the life insurance side, um, on, on the lower leverage stuff, they've been very aggressive. Um, you know, down some stuff down below four, as I mentioned earlier, a grocery anchored retail deal, low leverage, three and a quarter. I think that's a bit extreme. I think that's a lender that really has a hunger for grocery anchored retail. Um, but, but we're seeing a lot of deals on, on the life insurance companies locked in the four to four and a half range for ten year terms and, and twenty or twenty five year amortizations. Um, the CMBS side of things. They generally run today uh, across property types, probably ranging from anywhere from 4.2 to 4.3 up up to over 5. Mm-hmm. They do differentiate quite a bit by the type of property because that's how that property gets treated in their pools. We did a, a um, CMBS search on, on a on a hotel deal recently, and all of our all of our rates were in the mid fours on a hotel deal, which. We were surprised with, however, it's an extremely high-quality hotel in a high-quality location. They chased it very hard. Um, they will, rather than saying no on a CMBS stuff, they will raise their rates to offset the risk of that deal getting kicked out. So you might get a CMBS quote one day, 
at, that, that, that is a nominal four and a half, and you might get a, a quote tomorrow that's at four nine, it's because they view more risk in that property. I see. And Chris, what about uh, some loans and rates and LTVs at uh, BB&T? One of the things I think that sets BB&T and other banks apart is that our deal structure and pricing ends up being heavily dependent on a relationship with the client, not so just the LTV or the or the quality of the real estate. But, you know, we, we do business on the high end, the low end of the spectrum. We'll do, you know, million-dollar local entrepreneur deals, and then we'll do $25, $30 million big institutional quality apartment, new construction. On the latter, uh, you're probably seeing LIBOR plus uh, 225 to 275 on pricing there. And a number of our uh, developers there are also looking at doing forward interest rate swaps to lock in the rate for a term loan piece of the, of the financing on the uh, uh, following construction. And then, and then maybe at the other end of the spectrum on multifamily doing uh, Class C, uh, we do a number of deals in that space, and we're probably in the uh, LIBOR plus 300, 350 with floors in the mid 4% kind of thing. But again, it's going to be very dependent on, on what kind of relationship we have with the, uh, with the client. Right. And you brought up construction loans. Uh, what do you guys see out there for activity for construction loans? And uh, are lenders looking to do construction loans? What? Well, uh, banks, that's going to be their primary bread and butter. Mm -hmm. And so we clearly are looking to do construction loans. The market has given us construction loan opportunities in multifamily, uh, anchored retail or single-tenant retail, and some medical office buildings, and maybe some build-a-suit industrial. Uh, The rest of the opportunities are not going to be construction. They're going to be Mm value-add, turnaround, reposition, buying foreclosed property from other banks and trying to execute their business plan. So you guys are financing some of those? We are. And Tom, what do you see on construction and redevelopment loans? Right now, uh, that, that is mostly a bank business. And in, in, in the cases where we try to place construction deals with banks, what we find today is a tremendous borrower orientation. Uh, you've got to be a very, very strong borrower, both in terms of financially and track record-wise, to get Eddie Bank to want to go down the construction path with you. And I lift uh, a lot of weights. Is that that help? That probably, <laughs> that, that might not do it. You, you know, I guess it depends on who your loan officer is at the construction. Um, but uh, for a, for a you know, the old-fashioned sort of medium, medium borrower, you know, medium-strength borrower, I, I think they find it difficult today to get a bank to give them construction financing. So it's changed a lot from two, two or three years ago, right? I mean, it seems like there was, people say there are no construction loans, but you guys are out there aggressively seeking them, right? Yeah, uh, there are loans out there if, if, if you're the right borrower. Yeah. All right, I'll keep lifting weights, and hopefully I can get a construction loan if I need one, right? Well, in a moment, more from our capital experts. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com. (laughs) 
Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Today, we're talking about the capital markets. My guests are Tom Walsh, Chris Schweitzer, and Mike Hartman. And uh, Mike, I'd like to talk about some of the equity side uh, deals, and uh, what are some of the uh, financial models you see that are being utilized in this uh, current cycle? Uh, Thanks for the question. It's it's most of what I spend my time doing is helping local sponsors, developer, owner, operators source equity for their deals. And I usually get involved after they've exhausted their what I'll call the syndication, which is the first model I'll talk about, which is some call it friends and family, which quickly becomes doctors and dentists Mm -hmm. and then becomes country club. And the problem with all three of those is their limits. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can grow. This is a capital intensive industry we're in every great company wants to grow, there's going to be a limit. You can only pass the hat to the same group of people so many times until those people have reached a limit. And usually I get involved after that sponsor has exhausted those sources of funds. They come and usually the first thing that we talk about is a traditional institutional joint venture with a private equity fund, okay? And the private equity world is really divided into three groups, core, value add, and opportunity. And we've talked a little bit about value add and opportunity. A core fund has been raised to receive a lower return than value-add or opportunity. It's typically a stabilized asset. A value-add fund, there's some level, as the name suggests, that there's going to be value added by the sponsor. Maybe it needs to be retenanted, new paint, new carpet, whatever it is, rebranded. And then an opportunity fund is raised more at the high end to, uh, to achieve, let's call it high teens returns, maybe low 20s leveraged returns. And that's where you get your developers or you're buying an empty building distressed. The, the, the traditional joint venture is a most typically a 90-10 deal, right? So what that means is that if I'm the sponsor, I need to come up with roughly 10% of the equity and I'm relying on my fund partner to give 90% of the equity. They want to see the skin in the game, right? They absolutely do. And that's a change from pre-crash to post-crash is that Mm -hmm. the sliver. And we get into conversations about how do I fund my sliver? See, most Mm -hmm. people who are in real estate can't rub two nickels together. (laughs) Why? Not because they're bad people, but because they're entrepreneurs and they view their capital as best utilized, you know, on the table. They're all in at all times. And Mm -hmm. so it becomes difficult to grow when you're trying to kind of amass a portfolio. And that's why you have to start getting new venture partners involved. Um, One of the big things that you give up when you do one of these institutional joint ventures is you give up control, right? Mm -hmm. Your friends and family are going to give you the money, let you keep most of the economics and keep most of the control. So it's the best of all worlds. When you bring in an institutional joint venture partner, they're going to give you most of the money, but they're going to retain control. What does that mean? They control the sale of the asset, the refinance of the asset. You may have the asset and you may want to sell it in year three because you think you've achieved all of the returns you're going to get. They can overrule that and say, no, we're going to hold it for longer. Or they can force a sale. You want to hold it, but they want to sell it. They, they, they rule the roost. Right. And what are some of the costs to, to avail yourself to that type of institutional equity? Is that like 3% or was there a, to, a to, actually, to actually raise the money? Yeah. Yeah. You know, 2 to 3% if, mm-hmm. it, if there's an intermediary involved to find mm-hmm. a joint venture partner. Okay. Um, the real cost, of course, is the control that you're giving up. Right. And the Jobs Act is probably going to allow sponsors of these private syndications to, to advertise for investors uh, with no limit and maybe even allow crowdfunding up to a million dollars. Do you think it'll be easier to find more of these rich friends and more of these country club type uh, investors? And, and how might that affect? the market well that's I mean it scares me to, to think about that I mean we talk about you know when you're passing your hat to friends and family doctors and dentists is a code name for 
a sophisticated investor in the minds of the SEC, but yeah. someone who I can pull a fast one on. Right? <laughs> That's what that means. Yeah. You know, and then of course your country club by by you know it, it suggests a wealthy individual. When we start getting into raising money from you know, widows and orphans, then I think we're heading in the wrong direction personally. Tom, a quick tip before we go. Uh, be good to your lender and be respectful or it'll come back to haunt you. That's a good tip. Well, Tom, Chris, Mike, thanks for sharing your insight with our listeners today. We sure appreciate it. You can access the profiles, contact information, and websites of everyone on the show today at commercialrealestateshow.com. Next week, we'll have a show on retail tenant strategies. Be sure to join us. Thanks for spending some time with us. I'm Michael Bull. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com.